Well, good morning, church. Um, it's great to be with you again here today. Um, today, we're going to be finishing the book of Habakkuk, this book that we've journeyed through um, for this uh, last feels like several months, even as we took a break talking about what it means to live justly. And so if you're just joining us, you're coming at the very tail end. The good news is actually, this is probably my favorite part of this short book um, that's found in the Old Testament. We're going to be in Habakkuk chapter 3. So if you want to, you could go ahead and uh, go there as you look in uh, your Bibles. You know, to understand the context of Habakkuk, we actually needed to go all the way back to an eight-year-old boy who becomes king of Judah. His name was Josiah. Josiah. The name Josiah in the Bible means healed of the Lord. It's a phenomenal name. Healed of the Lord. And the powerful thing is, in Josiah's day, God indeed brought healing and restoration to the land of Judah. You know, the Old Testament is, 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 has this familiar pattern, some of you know, where under a godly king, the nation flourishes spiritually, culturally, in every other way. And under wicked and corrupt kings, the nation um, struggles and becomes an utter mess. And Josiah becomes king when he's eight years old, which tells you a little bit about the state of the country. And when he's 18 years old, something happens that would change the trajectory of Judah. A bunch of people are working in the temple and they come across and discover the book of the law, the Torah. God's word that had been neglected for decades under Josiah's father. It's found buried in the temples and the group of people find God's word and they bring it to Josiah. And the word of God, Torah, is read aloud in his hearing. And there's this powerful scene where Josiah begins to weep. He begins to tear his clothes and begins to grieve and mourn as he realizes, as he looks at his nation and as he looks at the word of God, how far his people had strayed from God's will and intention. So Josiah begins to do this. He begins to tear down all the places of false worship that had ensnared the people of Judah for generations. Let me just stop here and say this. You know, sometimes it feels like the strongholds in our lives. And the strongholds that are embedded in the systems in the world that we live in, that need to change, it feels like they've been there for so long and have been entrenched. We're so tired of pushing against them. And sometimes we're tempted to give up hope, wondering, will we ever be freed from them? Have you been there? Do you know what that's like? The story of Josiah reminds us, though, that God could set everything right, that God could release what binds us and bring us times of restoration and healing. Is that good news? Don't give up hope. Pray and contend, but don't ever give up hope. And under Josiah's leadership, the nation repents, turns from their wicked ways, and recommits to the worship of Yahweh. Well, eventually Josiah dies, though. And his son takes over. And guess what his son's name is? His son's name is Jehoiakim. And the Bible says that he was a wicked and corrupt king, and under his leadership, Judah once again forsakes the law of God 
and begins to worship idols. And the result is a nation in shambles with evil, injustice, corruption amongst the leaders, and hardship and suffering and violence. People are literally starving. Habakkuk, our prophet, is called by God at this time. This is the context in which Habakkuk is called during this turmoil in the nation of Judah. And as we knew, and and as we saw, unlike other prophets, Habakkuk doesn't speak to the people on behalf of God. He does what? He speaks to God on behalf of the people. All of his words are personally addressed to God. It's a very personal book. The book is Habakkuk's personal soul, trying to believe that God is good, that God is loving, that God is sovereign when there's so much evil and tragedy and suffering in the world. Chapters 1 and 2 are framed as back and forth arguments between Habakkuk and God. Chapter 1 begins with Habakkuk worrying, remember, as he sees this nation deteriorate right before his eyes. And God seems to be doing nothing about the evil, about the unjust and suffering. And so Habakkuk launches his first complaint. God, where are you? God, how long? God, I need you to do something. But God responds, doesn't he? God says, Habakkuk, I am very well aware of what your nation is going through. And God says, I am going to summon Babylon. Armies of Babylon to bring down justice on Israel. Habakkuk, of course, we saw, has a problem with this. And he says, God, Babylon is even worse than us. They're even more wicked, more unjust, more corrupt, more idolatrous than we are. How can you, a holy God, use evil and injustice to bring about deliverance and salvation? I demand an answer. And in chapter 2, Habakkuk waits for an answer. And the answer finally comes from God. And God says what? And we've harped on this for a while. The righteous person shall live by what? Say it with me. Faith in This hope and vision. And we didn't spend a ton of time on this, but chapter 2, God says, this hope and vision is found in, first of all, chapter 2, verse 14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. And verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Habakkuk. God says, history is not left to chance. History is not adrift, but under a sovereign control of a loving God. The end, Habakkuk, is not uncertain. It's not in doubt, but already revealed, clinched, and certain. The earth will be filled with the glory of God, and judgment and justice will fall on all the Babylons of the world. That's where history is headed. We will see that God's righteous anger was just that, righteous. We will one day see all wrongs being righted, every crooked thing being made straight, all broken things being made whole, all tears will be wiped away and everything will be made new. So church, I don't know what you're going through right now. But in spite of what you're going through, remember that a sovereign, loving God is in control. And God is working for you and me and us an eternal glory that we can't even begin to understand. So we say with Paul in Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing 
to the glory that will be revealed. Which brings us then to Habakkuk 3. Worship. Let me just say this. You don't come, I don't come to Habakkuk 3 faith unless and until you've had Habakkuk 1 questions. I'm going to say that again, Zizi. You cannot come to Habakkuk 3 faith unless you go through and ask Habakkuk 1 questions. God, how long? God, where are you? Questioning God is invited. Is that good news? Psalms, Job, Lamentations, Jesus, the Son of God on the cross. Take your honest questions to God when, you, when what you see with your eyes doesn't mesh with or is inconsistent with what you believe in your heart. Deep, mature faith can express simultaneously questions and faith. I would say this, the deeper our faith, the more doubts we must endure. The deeper our hope, the more we're prone to despair. And the deeper our love, the more pain its loss will bring. You don't come to Habakkuk 3 without Habakkuk 1. Habakkuk chapter 3 is Habakkuk's final response to God. And it's a poem. It's a worship song. It's beautiful. Amazingly, the book ends. It ends with one of the most powerful, beautiful expressions of trust, of trust, of trust in God in all of Scripture. I'm going to say this several times. So if you're taking those, jot it down. The truest expression of our trust in God will always be worship. The truest expression of our trust in God will always be worship. When I say worship, I'm not just singing, I'm not talking about just singing songs. I'm talking about an entire posture of lives where with our lips and with our lives we say, God, I believe that you are who you say you are, and I believe that you will do what you say you will do. So I will trust you. So I will place my hope in you and I will respond. It is a response. I will respond. In a way that says, I trust you and I place my hope in you. And, church, check this out it's worship, not after prayers are answered. Anybody can do that. It's not worship after things get better. It's not after, oh, this is hard. Justice has come in the time frame we wanted. It's worship not after the healing comes, but worship, this is the whole chapter, in the midst of, during. That is the truest expression of worship and of faith in God. So Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. Here we go. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, and Shigunoth. Shigunoth literally is a Hebrew word that means a musical setting for a song. Cece, you would love this. This is a worship song. It's, it's, it's lyrics to a song. Verse 2, Lord, I have heard of your fame. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Renew 
That word in the Hebrew literally is kaya, kaya, which literally means to revive, to restore, to repeat. Renew them in our day, in our time, make that known. In wrath, remember mercy. Everybody say that with me. Remember mercy. What's Habakkuk saying? He's saying, God, I've heard, I've heard about your power. I've heard about your glory. God, I've heard about your strength. But I'm having a hard time seeing it right now. God, I know you can, but you're not right now. But God, here it is, please do it again. God, do it again. And look at what Habakkuk does, something that is critical in order to worship during difficult times. He remembers, he recounts, check this out, the Exodus story. He recounts the Exodus story, the defining moment in the history of Israel. Verse 3, God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. What are these two places? Here's all you need to know. They are east of Jerusalem. Why is that important? Here's what Habakkuk is saying. God coming from Taman is like the rising of the sun. Picture this, church. Just as the sun breaks through the darkness and initiates a new day, Habakkuk says, God will come, break through the darkness, and initiate a new day. And so just like a night watchman waits, remember that picture? Waits, leans, strains towards the breaking of the morning sun. So we too wait, knowing that weeping may last for the night. But come on, church, but joy, what? Comes in the morning. That's the picture. Habakkuk's saying, God's coming. I wait. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor, Hebrew word is chod, which literally is kingly authority. His kingly authority was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Verse 5, plague went before him and pestilence followed his steps. What is that? That's how God got his children out of what? Israel, right? Verse 6, he stood and shook the earth. He, uh, the mountains, he... He made the whole nation tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled. What is that? That's Mount Sinai. And the age-old hills collapsed, but he marches on forever. Verse 13. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. Verse 14. With his own spear, you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. Verse 15. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. What is that? That's the Red Sea. Habakkuk is recounting the Exodus story, the good news of God's deliverance and salvation for his people. Habakkuk church is reminding himself of how God displayed his glory in the past. He's saying, God, I know who you are. Guys, I know what you're capable of. You're a God who brings justice and rescues the oppressed and the innocent. I know that you're a God who brings down the most powerful kingdoms on earth to his knees. God, you did it then. God, do it again. God, do it again. God, do it again. And then verse 16, I heard 
What's he referring to? He's referring to chapter 1 when he hears God saying, I am summoning Babylon. I heard and my heart pounded and my lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Can I, can I just picture something for you? In, literally in Hebrew, my heart pounded literally says, my bowels trembled. I'm shaking like a leaf. I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't even stand on my own two feet. What's happening? Here's the picture. Habakkuk is weeping uncontrollably. He's completely overwhelmed with grief and sorrow. Picture someone who receives the worst possible news and they just collapse and just begin to weep from the news. That's the picture of Habakkuk as he sees everything happening around him. And he sees God saying, I'm going to send Babylon. I want to pause here for a second, and I just want to unpack this with you. Habakkuk does something which is foreign to a lot of Christians. Here's what a lot of Christians do. A lot of Christians deny reality by spouting Christian cliches. There's nothing more frustrating to me than Christian cliches. Can I get an amen? Christians deny reality by spotting Christian cliches and they pretend like nothing is wrong or, or, or just this powerful temptation. They walk away from God because they can't make sense of God or what is happening around them. But what does Habakkuk do? And this is what genuine faith is. Habakkuk what? Doesn't deny the reality or the harshness of life. Habakkuk looks truth squarely in the face and lives solidly with his feet planted on earth. Check this out. Habakkuk also pays attention to, now live in denial of, and he is feeling and experiencing the deep sorrow, grief, and pain of the brokenness of the people and the world around him. And rest of that verse this is so powerful to me and yet he says i will wait patiently and that word wait patiently hebrew literally has this meaning a sense of deep peace and rest this it is so startling he says, I am overwhelmed with grief and sorrow. I am feeling and experiencing the brokenness of my sin and the brokenness of sins of the world around me. And yet, at the same time, he says, my heart and my soul is deeply at rest. For the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. This picture is startling deep sorrow and grief and yet he says but i trust you i place my hope in you and i will rest then comes the most powerful worship lyrics probably in all of old testament and this is what people know back from verse 17 Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, 
Though the olive crops fail and the, she- and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. Verse 18, and yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Before I unpack some of that sidebar, 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 have you noticed how the Bible is painfully repetitive? Have you noticed that? By the way, I feel kind of redeemed at the fact that the Bible is painfully repetitive, given that I repeat myself all the time. Anyway, the Bible is painfully repetitive. Why four Gospels? We don't need four accounts basically of the same thing. Why is the Bible painfully repetitive? Because here's why. You notice what he says. He says, I will rejoice in the Lord and I will be joyful. He says it a little bit different. So by having said it twice, here's what happens. It goes a little deeper. A little deeper. Every time you hear it, a little deeper, a little deeper. Psalm 62, 11, once God has spoken, but twice I have heard it. God knows that we need to hear things over and over and over and over and over and over again. Why? Because some of the most powerful truth is truth that you thought you knew, but you didn't. You heard it, but you didn't what? Actually hear it? It didn't get into your heart. Just practically, here's what this means. Find scripture. You could meditate on, 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 on Habakkuk chapter 3, the verses I read. Then you meditate and you study it. Then you invite some friends and you do the same thing. Meditate, study on it. They invite more people. Then you hear me preach on it. And each time you hear it, study it, meditate on it, it goes a little deeper, a little deeper, a little deeper, a little deeper. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Church, when does the rejoicing happen? The answer is it happens concurrently with the sorrow and grief and not after. See, we have trouble with that. Let's just be honest. We have trouble with that because most of us think you could either rejoice in the Lord or I am feeling deep grief and sorrow. Is it possible to rejoice in the Lord in the midst of the deep grief and sorrow? And the answer of scripture is what? Yes. You can rejoice not in your sorrow. Not in, you can rejoice not in your circumstances. You can rejoice in your sorrow and grief. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, what? Rejoice. Why and how does this happen? How, How does this rejoicing in the Lord concurrently with the sorrow and grief happen? I've quoted them before. Hudson Taylor said once, it does not matter how great the pressure is, what matters is where it lies. It could either come between you and God or it could press you nearer and nearer to his heart. I don't know if I'm going to do justice to this. I'm going to try and explain how this works. Habakkuk lives firmly rooted on the ground, facing truth, facing reality. 
And he is allowing himself to experience the deep grief. Lament, lament. And as he does, as he experiences deep grief and sorrow, he is allowing his grief and sorrow to what? To press his heart deeper and deeper into the heart of God. The only true, I'm going to say this many, many times, the only true source of joy, of peace, and of hope. And as his heart is being pressed nearer and nearer to God's heart, he begins to discover resources he didn't think he had. He begins to experience joy that he didn't know he had. Peace he didn't know he had. Hope that he didn't know he had. You could allow sorrow and grief to push you further and further away from God, church, or you could allow the grief and sorrow to press you nearer and nearer and nearer to God's heart where you encounter the only source of joy, peace, and hope. It's one thing to have joy when everything is going your way. It's another thing to maintain your joy when the bottom falls out. It's one thing to have peace when you have money in the bank. It's supernatural to maintain peace when you lose your job. It's one thing to have hope when justice is served. It's another thing entirely to maintain hope when justice is denied. But I'm telling you, joy, peace, and hope in the Lord is not environmentally sensitive. It's always in spite of something, and it's able to endure the chaos of life. It's even compatible with pain. Why? Because our joy, peace, and hope is not based on our lives or the circumstances, but is based in Him who is always there. always there and check this out and I love this then the experience of that joy peace and hope that enables you to pay attention to your grief to listen and pay attention and feel the grief and reason why I mentioned that is because many of us have a tendency to go I'm afraid of truly experiencing grief I'm afraid of truly letting myself to experience the sorrow I don't know what can of worms might open I don't know what it may lead so we offer I'm doing fine and be fake or 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 we grow bitter resentful angry but when you rejoice in the Lord and it presses you nearer and nearer to God's heart and you experience two sorts of joy and hope that then enables you to further experience grief and sorrow in a healthy way which means you become emotionally what healthy hello anybody and when you're emotionally healthy, you can grieve, mourn, and lament over the brokenness of the world and people and yourself without giving in to cynicism, pessimism, and hopelessness. Instead, you can trust in God's promises and surrender to His will, especially in moments when it's often the hardest to do so. It was a lot to unpack. What are you rejoicing in? 
What is your joy wagon hitched to? Your job? Relationships? Financial security? Children? Your marriage? One of my favorite verses in Isaiah is, Isaiah says this about Jesus, Isaiah 53.3, he is a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. Why is Jesus constantly weeping as he sees the brokenness of the world? I'll tell you why, because he's perfect. The tendency for us when we're experiencing grief and sorrow is to become self-absorbed or given to self-pity. It takes courage, security, and faith to feel the grief and sorrow and yet trust in your heavenly Father which enables you to love, sacrifice, give. So how do we rejoice in the Lord? Can't simply refer to feelings. A lot of Christians think rejoicing in the Lord is being happy, happy, happy. The Bible commands us to be happy. You and I both know that's not what it is. I would say it's a discipline, not a feeling. It's a countercultural, prophetic act of defiance to say, I will rejoice. How do you do it? We mentioned these couple of things and then we're done. First is remember. Remember. How do you rejoice in the Lord? Remember. That's this entire chapter, Habakkuk, remembering the Exodus, remembering how Israel, children of Israel, were in slavery and bondage and didn't have the power to get themselves out, but God, but God, but God, to, to those beautiful words in all of Scripture, but God miraculously intervenes, enters history, and brings them out. They're saved not by what they did, but what God does. And Habakkuk's saying, I have to reconnect what I know about God, what He's done in the past, to my present. Christian, whatever you're going through, if you do not reflect and remember what God did in the past, you will not experience him in the present and trust him for the future. You have to discipline yourself to remember, to remember. No wonder that one of the more common words in Old Testament is the word zakar, which literally says to remember. Remember, God is constantly saying to his people, yeah, I need you to remember. I need you to remember to live the full life that I intend for you to flourish. I need you to remember. Psalm 77, 11. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. Psalm 103, 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. John 14, verse 26. One of the main jobs of the Holy Spirit is what? But the helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all i've said to you practically can i just this is why you need to read your bibles this is why we need to read your bibles it's not so you can check off and say i'm a good christian because the bible is god's self-revelation of what he has done in the past and god is the same yesterday today and forever he changes not you want to know how he's worked in the past read your bibles those who know him best trust him most But not just reading scripture, but even personally. You need to regularly be disciplined about remembering. And you need to be specific about how God has been faithful and has acted in goodness. Let me just, come on, come on, look at me. I need you to be specific. You want to be able to rejoice. In the, you need to be specific about how God acted in the past. So some of you today need to remember 
how God set you free from sexual addiction when you didn't think it was possible. Some of you need to remember how God showed up in the form of an envelope with just the amount of rent you needed for that week. Some of you need to remember how you grew up in a godly home with godly parents when there's many, many dysfunctional broken families. Some of you need to remember how God sent mentors into your life to guide you during most critical times. Some of you can remember how you walked away from that car accident when you were 18 years old and, you didn't, you couldn't, and, and that wasn't supposed to happen. Some of you need to remember that when you had malaria when you were 19 and you were supposed to die, God gave you life to serve him. In what ways do you need to remember today and this week? specifically not generally specifically through many dangers toils and snares we've already come it was grace that's brought us safe thus far and it is grace that will lead us home whatever you're going through rejoicing in the lord is not based on transformation of circumstances but in remembering but in remembering but in remembering who god is instead of looking at your circumstances go back to your exodus go back to your exodus go back to your exodus and remind yourself god did it then god could do it again what do you need to remember secondly worship worship <laughs> rejoicing means to treasure to savor. It means to take something that's happened and say, look at what he's done. Look at who he is. Worship. Rejoicing is not just thinking. It's adoring. It's savoring. It's valuing. It's praising. And let me say a couple of things about worship. One, the hardest praise, the hardest praise is the highest praise. That's why it's called a sacrifice of praise. If you worship him only when you feel like worshiping, I got news for you. You're going to worship him less and less. You know, God loves us when we least expect it and when we least deserve it. But we have a hard time returning the favor, don't we? If you learn to praise him in the toughest times, it becomes a sacrifice. One of my favorite stories in the book of Acts is Paul and Silas, for preaching the gospel, have been beaten flogged and their feet are in shackles and here's what we find Acts 16 verse 25 at about midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them by the way there's always people watching you and listening to you Christian in this pandemic People are watching and listening. Who is your God? What is he about? He worships Paul and Silas. That's how they, they survived the prison. That's how Job survives the dark night of his soul. That's how David survives the wilderness. If you want to make it through tough times, you've got to give God the sacrifice of praise. It's, yes, it's way easier said than done, but sometimes it's the only thing we can do. Church, do not let yourself or your circumstances, do not let what's wrong with you and what's wrong with your circumstances keep you from worshiping what's right with God. Third, 
don't let the voice of, some of you need to hear, don't let the voice of condemnation from the enemy. You know, that voice that says, who are you to worship? Who are you? Look at what you did last today. Look what you did last week. Look how you, don't let that voice of condemnation keep you from worshiping God. Sing over it. Sing over it. Sing over it. Sing over it. If our worship is only based on our performance, then we're not really worshiping anyway. Because that kind of worship is self-worship because based on what we do instead of who God is and what he has done. Zephaniah 3, he is singing over you. Sing over that voice of condemnation. Are you in a season of waiting? I say that worship is the key to waiting. Worship changes everything. We struggle with waiting because we don't know how to worship. When we're asked to wait, could it be that we're being invited to worship in the midst of the mess, in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of pain? You can't fix it. You can't control it. So trust God with it and worship him and look for him. Look for his face, not just what's in his hands. Worship. And lastly, Pastor Peter, how do we get the power, the motivation to do this. Y'all know where I'm going with this, right? Look, if you hear a preacher and at some point you don't get to Jesus, you got to go, you're not finished preaching yet. I need you to connect it to Jesus. You know how we rejoice? Do you know how we could rejoice? Though there are no figs. First is remember, second is worship, third is simply Jesus. Verse 19, the sovereign Lord is my strength. Is, not will be, not could be. Listen, God will love you is not the gospel. God loves you, period, is the gospel. It's not he will be your strength if you behave. He is your strength. God is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on heights. Would you agree that climbing Mount Everest is not natural to us? It's foreign, isn't it? But have you ever seen a mountain goat or a mountain deer? They were made to climb the heights. You know what Habakkuk's saying? This is so powerful. He's saying, child of God, you were made to climb mountains. You were made to climb heights and worship. Say, so how is that possible? Verse 2 of chapter 3, in wrath, what? Remember mercy. 700 years later, in wrath, God remembered mercy. Did you know that Jesus met Moses? In Luke chapter 9, some of you don't know. It's the story of the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is literally on the mountains, on the heights, right? And he is glorified. And there is Moses and Elijah, and they're talking to him. And at the end of that, there is a word that commentators know what to do with. And I'm going, just say the Greek. Just say the Greek. People will know what it is. Luke chapter uh, 9, verse 31. So they, that is Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, spoke about his departure. In Greek, it literally says exodon, which is what? They spoke about his exodus, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. So I'm going to use a little imagination, and I'm going to say, Moses looks at Jesus and says, Hey, Jesus, I pulled off a great exodus. You should have been there. To which I think Jesus would have been like, I actually was there. But Moses says, but you're about to pull off the ultimate exodus. And Moses was right. 
Moses risked his life to liberate the children of Israel from political and social bondage, but Jesus gave his life in order to liberate us, not just from political, social bondage, but from evil, sin, and death. Is that good news? The first Moses slew the Lamb of God and put the blood on the doorpost so that the children of Israel could be forgiven and liberated. But the ultimate Moses, what? Was the Lamb of God. And by his blood, we are forgiven and liberated from sin, evil, and death. How can we rejoice, Peter? It's because Jesus is the ultimate Moses who brings about the ultimate exodus. This is our hope. This is our trust. This is why we can live by faith and not by sight. This is why we can say, God, even though everything around me is crumbling, even though the economy is tanking, even though I'm experiencing suffering, hardship, and even though I feel destroyed, I will pray praise you. I will worship you. I will rejoice in you. You are my strength and you are my hope. Jesus is why when you say, Lord, why have you forsaken me? Where are you, God? Where are you? You may feel abandoned, but you're not, and you will never be. Why? Because Jesus was forsaken and abandoned for you. Jesus remains faithful even when the weight of sin, evil, and injustice came upon him. That's why you can trust him. That's why you can surrender to his will in moments when it's often most difficult to do so. Jesus, the ultimate Moses, is the reason why we could wait in the confusing in between the Saturdays of our lives. Yes, God can change circumstances, and we pray that he would. But the cross is proof that he doesn't always change our circumstances. But in every circumstance, he is able to glorify himself, bring good to us, and bring deliverance and salvation. Amen. He is with you in the waiting, no matter how scary, isolating, and uncertain the future. It's the gospel that enables you and me to trust him through the disorienting sting of cancer, death, unemployment and injustice even as we move out to fight for justice and reach out to those who are hurting with the love of the one who will one day wipe every tear from our eyes and i especially now need to remember that jesus is why we can be sure that a day is coming when all evil will be defeated and all injustice will be no more and god will rescue the oppressed and the innocent and he will rule and reign forever this is where history is headed. History ends, church, with the angelic host, what? Worshiping, praise, glory, honor, and worthy are you the Lamb of God, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's where worship is. His glory and power will never end. History ends, I want to say it again, with his glory filling the whole earth. The end is not uncertain or in doubt, but revealed, clinched, and certain. Every crooked thing will be made right. All wrongs will be righted. Broken things made whole. Every tear wiped from our eyes, and all things will be made new. And one day we will not have to wait on God, because we will see him face to face. Even though the world is falling apart with the pandemic, drought, war, the righteous will trust him and rejoice in the covenant promises of God. God loves this world more than we do, and one day he will deal 
with this evil. That is the book of Habakkuk. Let's prepare our hearts to take communion, church.